Blog Talk Radio. Hi, this is Adriel Hampton of Government 2.0 Radio. I'm here with my co-hosts, Steve Lunsford and Steve Ressler, and today we're going to be talking about Congress Camp, an event held last week to introduce Gov 2.0, Web 2.0 concepts uh, to the federal legislature, and uh, we're going to be talking to some interesting guests who are at that event and uh, some who are sponsoring, presenting, and participating. Uh, first of all, uh, talk a little bit just about what's been going on in the world of government reform through technology this week. And uh, Steve Ressler, what do you got for us this week? Steve Ressler? Uh, we may have lost Mr. Steve Lunds, but I'll go ahead and uh, <laughs> okay, no, sorry, man. So, so uh, Ressler joins back in. Uh, you know, one thing I actually thought that was interesting that folks may not have seen yet um, uh, is yesterday on the whitehouse.gov uh, blog, uh, Macon Phillips is the uh, new media director there at the White House, put up something regarding the use of Internet and the Presidential Records Act. And, and this is something that I think uh, applies, is applicable, uh, not just for the, the PRA um, and how it applies to the executive uh, branch of the, of, the, of the federal, but I think records retention is an issue that I think cuts across uh, all levels of government, from federal to state to local, uh, in, in many different ways. And I know that there was a story that I saw in the past week or so in Florida that uh, folk, I think, Adriel, you may have seen this as well, where folks have uh, stopped posting on Facebook and other areas until they kind of get it straightened out in terms of the sunshine laws down there. So I thought this was a, a pretty interesting post to look at, um, you know, how do you start to to ensure that in a digital age when you're using a lot of these new channels, uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Flickr, uh, you know, from a video, uh, from a from a an image standpoint um, or a video standpoint with YouTube, et cetera. How do you ensure that you're um, uh, keeping in in with the spirit of of uh, things like the Presidential Records Act or Florida Sunshine Laws uh, in terms of record retention? And I think it's something that people will um, will have to deal with. So that the White House is going to be putting out a proposal uh, for automated archiving process, which I think is uh, uh, hopefully, you know, maybe they'll lead the way and, and help uh, provide some, some guidance for some other levels of government to show that you can still use these tools and, and abide by the laws and the regulations that are out there in terms of uh, uh, record keeping. Yeah, that was a big one, and I uh, have, have been wanting to read it, and I haven't had a, a chance yet, so I want to really digest it. It was something I wrote a short blog entry in response to that uh, Florida news story, which was interesting, because you have a whole gamut of stuff. You have people um, not really worrying about the records retention issues at all and saying it's not a record, or and then you have some more conservative folks saying just don't do it at all. And uh, so it's great to see the White House taking a lead in uh, wanting to put some some information and and um, uh, also I guess they're hiring the archivist, right? Is that all tied together? You think? Yeah, I believe so. And, and for folks who want to check the blog out, it's uh, it's up there from Saturday. I'll go ahead and, and tweet it out over uh, the Gusford channel and my personal um, uh, Twitter ID. But you, you can go to uh, WhiteHouse.gov/blog and, and it'll be the the last entry from uh, from yesterday. So yeah, I think it does go along with the archivist and and um, and again, I think there, you know, there's tools that hopefully will will uh, will start to emerge to make this easy and affordable 
no matter kind of what the level is. Uh, we, we were trading messages earlier this week about TweetSaver, which is a new uh, service that's out there, and, and something like that could be used from a Twitter platform. But, you know, you're going to have to look at how do you do this across whatever these uh, new media platforms you may be using for your agency. The other big thing was that apps.gov. Didn't that just come out at the beginning of last week? Yeah, that was uh, – sorry if I had technical difficulties there. I didn't know. We're working a new – <laughs> yeah, am I back on? Yeah, you're here. Um, yeah, so apps.gov was an interesting release. Um, I think there's two ways to take it. If people haven't checked it out, go to apps.gov. Basically, the idea is a, it's a GSA-run storefront um, for kind of easy software-as-a-service uh, computing. So easy uh, software that you see already out there, uh, user voice, idea, scale. Salesforce had some stuff there that – agencies can pick up and just use right away rather than go through the traditional kind of lengthy procurement processes and security arrangements. Um, the trick, I think, for me, and it'll be interesting to see how it evolves, I think it's it's uh, just a start, which is always good. I like getting things out there and getting the beta, um, but a lot of that stuff was already out there in different forms at the GSA already. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, in three months, are there 50 more applications out there? Um, I think almost everything there that's out right now is free. It would be interesting to see as more paid applications get out there. Um, so to me, it, it's a, a good start, but a little bit of a, of a hype wheel. So I, I'm excited to see what will come of it. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that, Lunsford? Yeah, I, I think um, it is kind of a hype wheel. But, but that said, you got to start somewhere. And so I think rolling something out that um, allows people to kind of trial and see, you know, what they can use. There's, and there's a number of applications, I think, that, that aren't quite there yet. Um, I think uh, I'd have to go back and, and look, but there are, I know some folks were saying that, you know, Twitter, for instance, Twitter's not one of the apps, right? So yet there are a lot of people that are using that particular channel. So how do you, um, how do you ensure that the ones that, that folks, you know, the four or five go-tos uh, from a social media standpoint are, are going to be there? Um, but it, but it'll only grow. So I think yeah, it's, it's a great first step. I think people were pretty excited about it. I think one of the other things that that ties a little bit to that is that um, Google announced their their cloud also this week um, for for government. Am I am I correct in that or am I or was that that was Monday, right? Yeah, I think that was this week. Yeah, that was this week. Yeah. So so we've we've seen a lot of a lot of uh, stuff kind of moving around the cloud as well. So you've got a product from GSA. You've got Google coming out with a product. You've got uh, uh, Department of Interior. And then I think Amazon also mentioned that they're going to kind of try to uh, make a government version of, of the cloud computing services that they've been offering um, uh, and some governments have been using already. So, you know, a lot of activity on that front as well. And I think uh, what will be interesting to see is, you know, so there's been a, a lot in the federal space people talking about it. It'll be interesting to see how that kind of again, trickles down to, to state and local government use of, of those services who, who probably uh, should be a, a big user given the, the, the cost efficiencies and, and some of the things you can get um, from those services. So one interesting little bit about uh, Twitter not being on there, I know some people are saying, well, it's a service, not an application, but uh, it could also have something to do with their new terms of service, which in the last couple of weeks were causing some consternation because they default, I guess, to California law now. And GSA, part of their uh, agreements for terms of service with services that are going to be used by the Fed so that they don't um, uh, default to a state 
uh, regulatory system uh, because the, the feds want something that's, uh, that's applicable to federal law, not a, not a specific state. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. Could be, it could be or it could just be they just haven't sat down with GSA yet. I mean, my hope it would be uh, we should probably tweet uh, Casey Coleman or someone and see if uh, if she if she knows. But my hope would be that that the folks at Twitter would actually sit down with the, the feds to kind of hammer out uh, something that would be agreeable to both sides. Um, because again, I do think that the channel is uh, is is one that that is extremely useful for governments to uh, to engage. Yeah, because you wouldn't want GovTwit to go uh, to go dark because none of the feds can tweet. That would be yeah, that's true. You know, it, it's funny. You know, one of the other things I saw uh, that was in today's Washington Post. I haven't uh, I haven't seen anybody talk about it yet. I'll have to link it up on Twitter and then uh, in the weekend review. Is uh, the Watch Post uh, had a, a story today about um, uh, that maybe ties into the, to, to the latter topic today about uh, politicians using Twitter and, and who is in Congress has done at the University of Maryland, looked through uh, more than 6,000 Twitter postings over the last couple of months and, and found that, by and large, uh, they're not using the the, uh, the channel to engage in any way, shape, or form. They're really using it just to kind of promote themselves, uh, to re, uh, re-put up press releases, the fact that they just, uh, uh, well, it's one of them here, Neil Abercrombie with uh, Democrat from Hawaii is tweeting about his weightlifting workout. Um, so, so not a lot of, of interaction that they they found going through this, and they're going to they're going to I think continue some of this research and and present it in a more formalized way. But um, well, I yeah. think that's a that's a good segue to our uh, guests because the um, this event Congress Camp last week is the uh, it's transforming citizen engagement with Congress through social media and collaboration tools. And I think one of the things they were talking about is how as, as uh, politicians uh, come into this space. Uh, one of the interesting things it seems that that campaigns and politics drives some of the quicker adoption among high-level uh, officials. But there's a lot of just kind of the one-way traditional broadcast media use. But it, it sounds like a really great event, and um, it's uh, it's online at CongressCamp.org. Today with us we have uh, Nisha Chital from uh, Politicoholic. Uh, we have Alan. Uh, Silberberg, uh, CEO of U2Gov, uh, who is one of the sponsors and uh, I believe did some um, presentations at the event, and also uh, Jim. Uh, uh, Jim, is it Gilliam or Gilliam? Gilliam, yeah. Gilliam, and uh, and is it Act Lee? Is that how you say it? How do you say the the name of your petition site? Uh, Act Lee, yeah. Uh-huh. Like Act Lee, and uh, Jim is creator of Act Lee, and also uh, the. Uh, Technical guy behind uh, GovLove, which is a uh, a new uh, Twitter service coming out soon, and also of Nation Builder, which is the tool behind uh, White House Two, and uh, also uh, I used it on my political campaign, which allows uh, folks to rate up and down uh, agenda items, issue items, uh, in a very uh, easy, uh, in a transparent wiki style uh, way, and. Um, why don't I have uh, Jim? You kick it off. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Congress Camp? And the the one real question I had is who put it together? Because it's not uh, not quite clear from the blog who was actually writing these things. And I know many people were involved. Yeah, it was, it was a big uh, group effort. I know that the blog in particular was written by anybody. In fact, that was one of the things um, that we were all encouraged to do was to just you know sign up and, and write blogs about the different topics. Um, 
a couple of the main people involved I know was uh, Wayne Burke um, from the Open Forum Foundation. Um, he's the guy that I'm working with on GovLove. And uh-huh. also uh, Noel Dickover um, uh, has been involved a lot as well at all in sort of getting that all organized. Um, uh, it was really great. I got a chance to, um, to, to demo GovLove in an early version of it. Um, and the feedback was really great. The, the idea behind uh, GovLove is to sort of is to address what you were just talking about previously in this Washington Post article today um, about this study and how politicians aren't really um, engaging with folks on Twitter. And, and the hope is that, um, you know, in partnership with the Open Forum Foundation, we can start to um, get more uh, government officials actually on Twitter, but then also um, create a real two-way conversation. And um, GovLove is designed to um, facilitate that um, um, in particular. So That's great. And, uh, Alan, you also were able to demo uh, U2Gov over there? Yes, and first, before I go any further, I want to say that GovLove was, was the thing that received probably the, by far the most attention and recognition at Congress Camp. Um, Congress Camp was organized by not just the folks that were mentioned, but also um, the CEO of Grasshopper, what played a very integral role, and also a couple other people didn't. But, you know, it, Jim pointed out it was a real group effort. There were a lot of people there who were um, tweeting, who were blogging, you know, live, uh, doing live video, in fact. And so that, that event got extremely well captured. Uh, one of the things that I find to be a fascinating issue right now is uh, the fact that, yes, there's a lot of sort of, quote, unquote, uh, vehicles of communication, but so far the politicians have been um, very uh, sparse and how they're choosing to use these tools, partially, I think, because they are afraid of the populist nature of these types of technology. They can't control them. And partially because they've got staff around them advising them right now to be very, very careful. We don't really know what's going on here. So, But there are some politicians who are starting to take some, some very definite but tentative steps in that direction. Like, like one I know, um, and it looks like there was some discussion of him at uh, Congress campus, John Culberson, and he was also, uh, I think, one of the speakers at uh, the Government 2.0 Summit, who's kind of really uses Twitter back and forth. I guess he does some quick uh, live video streaming. Yeah, he was one of the examples. There were actually several. One of the things that was really striking, however, was the discussion that was um, put forth by staff members of members of Congress, which was that they feel like they're kind of in a bind. On one hand, they're watching all this technology happen really fast and roll, get rolled out by uh, other people. But on the other hand, the, um, the, the House and Senate official policies as well as other government policies um, and these concerns that politicians have about the tools um, just make it very difficult for some of the staff to actually get their bosses to, to agree to use these tools. Yeah, it, uh, this is Steve Ressler on the line. Yeah, I'd love to hear your take, too. It sounds like a lot of the same hurdles that the legislative branch is facing, the same ones that executive is. Um, can you talk a little bit? Uh, are the staffers have the same problems with access issues, sites being blocked, or is it more just kind of the, the Records Act issues, which seem very similar to... Um, the one thing that really struck me, actually, and, and Jim, I'm sure we'll have a different take on this, perhaps, initially as well, but... It seemed that a lot of the House and Senate staffers were talking about using very outdated browsers and outdated technology um, that were, you know, because that was when their their systems were bought. But the other thing that struck me was that each each congressional office is run like a small business, and so they have the political side, they have the official side, and they each one makes their own IT and web decisions. 
Um, so it ends up, I think, becoming almost more complicated than the, than the executive side simply because of that. Oh, uh, Nisha, what were your um, impressions of the event? Um, you know, I wanted to add on to what Alan was just saying, was that one of the things um, a lot of the staff members brought up last weekend was that a lot of their offices are still operating on, I think they said they just got Exchange 2003, they're still using IE6. Um, so they have a lot of issues in terms of getting the right um, technology and the most up-to-date tools in their offices. And they're just understaffed. Every, you know, some of these congressional offices they were telling us have 10 people on staff to handle tons and tons of constituent communications, and they can't possibly go through it all. And they're seeing all these new technologies coming out and these other offices using Twitter or Facebook or blogging, but they just don't have the manpower and the resources to take it all on and to engage constituents in that way. So I thought that was really interesting um, to hear that from their perspective and to hear them say, you know, we want to get into social media and using all these tools, but we don't necessarily have the resources and the manpower to do it and to do it effectively. Because you're looking at you can't give up email or give up phones or give up letters because that's still what most people are using, right? So, so this is a, a extra work, even though you you might see it as uh, as streamlining communications in some sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it adds on. You know, they say they prioritize communications that come from their own constituents, but when you're communicating online, you can't tell if this person who's tweeting at you is from your own district or not. So when they're getting thousands of tweets or comments on their Facebook page, how do you filter out all of those communications? How do you decide who to prioritize and who to listen to? Um, so I think it presents a lot of unique challenges for them. And the staffers, um, the Hill staff that were there last week, were really open and forthcoming about these kinds of obstacles they're facing. And um, I think so to, add, really on to, that, to, I think to add on to that, what Nisha just said also, there's, there's also a really important part of the idea that you know the members of Congress are out there. On on one hand, they're they're talking about the, the political side. On the other hand, they're talking about the the official government side, and their staff members sort of have to um, negotiate a balance between in terms of communications. Um, one of the things that that we've started looking at, and, and this really came up a lot in in the discussions, was the idea of how do you verify somebody's identity? You know, when someone sends in an email uh, or an electronic communication, how do you know that it's really that person versus someone faking that person or someone just um, using a fake name because they don't want their name out in public on some issue? So uh, that was something that came up in a number of different levels. Um, and it's clearly going to be, I think, one of the biggest concerns of how government 2.0 technology gets rolled out in legislatures, not just in the Hill, in Washington, but also across all 50 states. It seems to me that you know, this, this notion of who's a real person, who's a real constituent, is, is going to be getting a lot of traction quite soon. Right. And another thing they mentioned was that of the thousands of emails they get in their offices, um, a huge portion of them are generated by advocacy organizations and interest groups. Right. So do you pay attention to those, or do you pay more attention to um, you know, the 70-year-old who took an hour to write a handwritten letter to send to a senator. So I think it's hard for them to filter out and decide what communications to prioritize when there's so much now that you can communicate so easily online. This is one of the big things that we've heard um, in, in developing GovLove as we've talked to people on the Hill. And, and, and there are definitely, um, um, you know, evangelists within uh, the, the staffers, um, uh, Rob Pearson on the Democratic side and Sean Hackbarth on the Republican side have been, you know, 
you know, evangelizing social media tools. Um, I know that there was a big, like right before Congress camp, there was a big uh, panel, one of, the, one of the most well-attended bipartisan panels of staffers, um, uh, like ever, right, on, uh, on the Hill, um, around uh, Twitter and, and social media. Um, the things that we've heard are exactly this, right? People, they want to know how to prioritize. Um, they want to know who their constituents are and stuff like that. And so that's a lot of what's driving um, uh, the development behind GovLove is to try to provide those, um, to provide those tools um, to the, the, the staffers. So, so Dan, and, this is Steve Lunsford. Let me ask a question. What, what, what's, the, what's uh, the comparative, uh, another kind of tool or social network just came out this past week, 3121, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> which is done by the National Journal, which is supposed to be kind of, um, I don't know, call it what you want, a, a GovLoop for, for uh, Hill staffers or, yeah. uh, you know, that sort of thing. Have you had a chance to look at that at all and see kind of what are some of the differences that uh, uh, that, that yeah. a tool like that will provide or a network um, like that will provide? It, it was you know, I can demo. speak about that a little bit um, just because my company um, is actually working with National Journal on that. Um, and what it is, it's, it's a social and professional network for um, Hill staff. So it's supposed to hopefully, once we get more congressional staff using it, um, be a dynamic directory and networking tool for all the congressional staffers. Um, and can hopefully increase a lot of their internal efficiency by putting a lot of online tools together for them and having sort of a private network for Hill staff to easily, more easily communicate between offices. I think uh, also this is Alan. Uh, the other thing that uh, they were demoed at Congress camp, and um, they showed us, you know, a pretty lengthy um, demonstration of what the tool is going to be used for. It is definitely, um, you know, one of the things that people say, you know, is this another type of GovLoop or is this another Facebook or is this something? Um, in this situation, really have a, a closed social network. It's not open to anyone except people who are members, uh, staff, staff, and um, and therefore it's going to have a very unique nature of. Uh, of a closed niche social network, uh, and so the, the it's hard to say exactly what will come of that. Um, and and but they do have a lot of support given the, the media muscle behind them and the money that they're using to launch it with. Uh, one of the things that strikes me is that the the terms that we're using are all kind of loose. And however, the tools that have been created and the things that are being uh, put forth, as was discussed heavily last week at the Gov 2.0 summit, um, you know, these are, there are platforms now that exist that are doing a good deal of what people are hypothesizing about and, and dreaming about. And people and, and these tools exist, and, and Jim is creating a bunch of them, and, and we are, and a lot of other companies are too. And it, what's interesting about those tools is that they're being implemented in ways that none of us have ever thought of. And so a year from now or two years from now, when we start talking about social networking, again, it'll be a, a totally different term in how we approach this stuff. Yeah, definitely. This is a Steve Chippenham, and I, I think – we think of social networks in, just in the way we know it, and there's kind of one model. Um, but I think there's a lot of different models, degrees of openness, closeness, um, and there's different ways that the knowledge sharing is going on. I mean, I think a lot of the, the tapping into, like the, the 3121 talking about, um, is just the kind of knowledge management issues and collaboration issues we've always faced. You know, how do we get people that are working on the same problems to connect that we duplicate the wheel. And that's always been the issue, no matter if uh, you work in a company and it has 500 people, how to get those people talking, whether you're in one large government agency, across agencies, or the Hill. Um, these are all common uh, social issues we've always been facing. 
Um, and the technology is out there now to kind of try to start tackling them. Uh, the issue will be whether people will want to and if there's the muscle behind it, um, the, the real instincts to, to give back and connect and share. Um, the good side, it seems like people are adopting a lot of these tools. Um, and you can see it just with Twitter, for example, where they're taking in new directions every day. Uh, so I think it will be funny, I think, like Alan said, in the space a year or two from now, uh, where people have taken a lot of these platforms. Jim, let me ask you, so you demoed uh, GovLove. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is? Uh, yeah, um, so basically the idea is, is um, you sign in with your Twitter account, and you put in your address, and we show you uh, your stack of representatives from Obama um, to your senators down to your uh, local council member. Um, it's broken down by federal, state, and local. Um, it's a mashup, technically, of the Vote Smart API, Twitter. We got some of the Twitter information from the Sunlight Foundation. Um, we're doing our own mappings. Uh, and, um, and then you get this view um, for each office, which is you know, all the tweets that are coming from, uh, from, from the actual you know, politician, but then also from their staffers if they're on Twitter. And then you get all of the messages that people are sending to them, right? So it's, it sort of creates sort of something like a Facebook wall, essentially, based around Twitter and, um, you know, gets away from sort of the current implementations, which are just about, you know, whatever the politician is tweeting, right? I thought what was really a lot more interesting was um, what people are saying to them, right? And then um, we're aggregating that information um, and trying to make it useful for the folks um, uh, in Congress or, you know, in sort of different offices. Um, you know, we, they, they want to know things like, you know, is this a constituent, right? So we can tell them, you know, you have, you know, 500 constituents on Twitter, right? Here's who they are. Um, they want to know um, what are the trending topics. And so we'll, we're going to be showing, like, you know, this week everybody's talking about, you know, you know HCR, right, and, you know, uh, environment and different things like that. Um, You're going to have to get so everybody to, to set their location back from Iran, <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Um, it does do some guessing. Um, we can, you know, when they sign in, we can, you know, guess based upon their IP address roughly what city they're in. Um, but to do actual, um, uh, to figure out what their actual representative is, we pretty much have to ask them for it. But it's pretty, it's pretty easy to do. Um, and so, you know, I, I really like this idea of being able to, you know, for folks to be able to say, we won't, we won't publish the information as to their actual address, but um, having it available saying, you know, this person um, is associated with this particular representative and these particular senators, I think can be really interesting information to put back out into the Twitter ecosystem. And um, a lot of new applications can be built, a lot of new citizen engagement tools based upon... So will you be, that. to some extent, crowdsourcing um, that kind of intelligence gathering? I mean, you know, I know uh, living in uh, densely populated San Francisco Bay Area, the districts are gerrymandered, you know, some... some uh, counties have uh, three Congress people, for example. Right. Um, the uh, we, when you put in your address, we geocode it, and it based upon the Vote Smart API, we can place you in the appropriate district. Um, the piece that we that we are crowdsourcing um, is definitely going to be you know who's actually on Twitter um, and mapping those to the actual offices. Um, hopefully, people will start raising their hands um, when they when they see it, like you know, particularly staffers. I, I'm most excited. 
frankly, about getting the staffers on under their real name saying, hey, you know, I do press for, you know, uh, this member of Congress, right, or, you know, I do policy around health care for this. And, and because I'm, like, a lot more likely as a citizen to engage with someone who's working on the issue that, that is sort of most likely to actually, you know, listen and possibly even respond to me, um, whereas I might not even bother if it's just, you know, if it's like the, the official account, which is, you know, getting overwhelmed with lots of messages. And I know that one of the things I always think about with, with Twitter, and hopefully this will, your service and kind of the uh, ethos behind it may break some of this barrier, but you have a lot of officials on, but it's very unclear who's actually running the account, whether it's live, whether someone's actually reading the messages. People don't really, uh, you know, put their real names to staffers, and uh, hopefully yeah, that'll, that'll kind of change. I'm definitely trying to 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 encourage people to do that. Um, you know, there's there's right now there's sort of this movement I think uh, amongst folks to get other people to tweet for them, right? And and that's certainly a lot of what's happening on campaigns. And and I'm hoping to push it uh, in the opposite direction. Um, I think one of the things we've really learned about social media and, and business in particular has learned this really well is that like the more you let your employees out there, you know, communicate you know, from their own voice, right, what's going on within the company and interact with customers, that, it, that it's more effective. And I think, you know, government and politicians are sort of behind uh, uh, the curve on that. And um, I expect it will, that the ones who do do it, particularly on the campaign side, are going to be the ones that start winning elections. And Tim, I agree with that. Show. And I think the other thing is, like, and, and Guy Kawasaki is a perfect example. I mean, here's a guy, who, no, no, I mean, no pun on the name, who um, tweets nonstop. And he's constantly being retweeted. Um, however, if you look carefully at the tweet stream of his, there's a lot of initials at the end of his tweet stream. Different people writing have to put their initials because he actually got into a bit of a controversy where you know, some people sort of said, are you really the one tweeting or not? And so either we have a situation where like, you know, these tweets get tagged with whoever the author is, which right away makes it a sort of secondary source. Um, or I agree with you that we've pushed to a new level of transparency where, you know, if you're, if you're an elected member uh, staff person and, you, and you're tweeting under a fake name, you know, maybe you shouldn't be on Twitter. You, you know, maybe, maybe the, the, the bar should be that if you're in a public uh, light in some way, you know, when you go on Twitter and you're tweeting, you're doing it as you, not as someone else. And this just goes back to sort of verified identity, but this time it's on the government side. And there already yeah. are things like uh, Guy Kawasaki is probably using something like CoTweet, which automatically uh, you, you can staff up a single account and then it marks who's actually doing it, which I have no problem with. But I, I did uh, think that Kawasaki was on the wrong side of that whole debate in that if you're having someone ghost your account, you've you got to make that clear because it's not very social to be hiding behind a mask even if you have no ill will. Well, and especially when you apply that to government agencies who are, are using other communications tools in the open and the clear, so therefore they should be using Twitter in the same way. I mean, if you call up on the phone and you, you dial your local tax assessor's office, they're going to answer the phone and they're going to say local tax assessor's office. And so I think on Twitter the same level of sort of clarity needs to exist, at least on, on government agency side, and I would extend that to other social networks as well. Yeah, and I think you see that with elected officials on Twitter, too. I think the, the elected officials that have been most successful with using Twitter 
are the ones who are actually tweeting themselves and bring real authenticity to it. And sometimes they put their foot in their mouth. Um, but that's what people love about it is that you see you get unfiltered access to that individual rather than prepackaged tweets from their staff or from other people. Um, so you look at like Claire McCaskill or um, John Culberson, who we talked about earlier. Those two, I mean, sometimes they say kind of silly or random things on Twitter, but everybody loves the kind of transparency that they bring to it. There's a lot of value to them as well. Like, I mean, it's one of the hardest things is getting outside of the D.C. bubble, right, and actually communicating with real people. And frequently it's in, you know, town halls and it's all heavily choreographed and things like that, right? Well, you know, Twitter is like a really, it's a really, really effective way to get the pulse of what people are thinking. And um, it can, you know, really have an impact on, on um, a member of Congress in particular to, to know uh, what their folks are thinking in a sort of very unfiltered and, you know, not packaged way. Mm-hmm. So, but, and, and this is Steve Lunsford, and mind you, I'm, a, I'm as big a fan of Twitter as they come, but, you know, it was brought up earlier, you've got to put it in context with the rest of your constituency that may or may not be using that particular channel to try to communicate. So I think it's important also uh, for them to figure out, again, it, it, it is that quick pulse of what may be happening and what people are thinking about, but it may be a certain subsegment of the population or, or of your constituency that that's actually uh, – representative of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was actually one uh, particular session at Congress Camp last week where we talked about sort of the digital divide and the fact that really we, t- we spent so much time talking about online tools, but really only 20% of the American public are online actively. Um, so I think as we start to have a lot more of our citizen, um, citizen-to-government communication online, there's a huge segment of the population that's still left out of that. And, leaves a big problem for us to still answer. I've got a question for uh, the other people at Congress Camp. We've talked a lot about uh, Twitter and social networks, but uh, one of the, the cool technologies I really like out of all of this is kind of the online town hall, the, the idea generation platforms like user voice and idea scale. Um, the White House has done you know, the Obama asks for questions and there's a Homeland Security dialogue. Uh, what other kind of Things were people talking about, uh, was that a big issue? Um, as also uh, on a local level, I see here, um, you know, I just saw a sign today driving by for a town hall um, down the street on Wednesday. And, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity there to move some of that, um, both in person, but moving some of that online for people that don't want to be there actually at those kind of town halls. Uh, this is Alan. I think that's actually a really good point. And my company has been involved with, in discussions now um, with, um, you know, some of the backers of some of the large summits and um, with the idea of using connective technology to break through barriers of, that exist between citizens and delegates or ministers at high levels. And I think you can take the same concept and apply it at a local level. Um, there's no reason why town halls shouldn't both be tr- streamed have a live Twitter fall behind them and, you know, where people can truly participate from outside the halls where they can sit in their living room or in their bedroom or whatever and be a part of it. I think that we're, we're, we're clearly seeing a generational shift um, in how politics is, uh, is not only covered here in the United States, but also how po- politi- politics itself is discussed, debated, and, um, and how we as a people are, you know, pushing each other to use this technology to get things done. 
Yeah, and you know the the, the live Twitter follow. I think Andrew Krasmarzik had a yeah. was talking about that, that with you that that should be behind instead of uh, the Veep and, and yeah, we were having a little, a little bit of a Twitter conversation about that earlier in the week. Yeah, and I, I agree. I mean, it would be a lot easier, a lot more interesting to kind of see read what's going on behind the president as he addresses Congress versus uh, uh, watching Biden or and and Pelosi just kind of sitting there, standing out, mean, standing it, sitting. But it also poses a real problem for politicians, which is what I was talking about earlier, which is they can't control populism. And these tools allow populism to, to explode in ways that no politician necessarily likes. So the problem with having that is that any politician is going to look up and see their name in lights on national television you know, being slammed. Yeah, well, I think what's going to happen is there's going to be a new class of politicians that's really good at leveraging that. Well, that's right? true. I think... I think we're going to see a big shift from people that try to control the message to people that are able to harness, right, the, the, the sentiments that's out there and, and, the, and the politicians that are good at, at tapping into that and understanding it and being a part of it are going to be the ones that will be more successful longer term. Jim, was there much discussion? I mean, you look at, like, the, the intense vitriol around partisan politics and, say, like with the Joe Wilson uh, outburst, you had – uh, massive fundraising for his Democratic opponent, but he was also able to raise huge amounts of money almost overnight based on the fact that he insulted the president on live TV. So when you harness populism, you can also harness some pretty ugly... I mean, the easier you make it for uh, trolls, basically, to participate, the, the nastier it gets. I, I, I wonder what folks were talking about in that respect. It didn't. It wasn't a big topic of conversation at Congress camp, um, but yes, I mean, it's the, what we're seeing is that, like, in order to break through, I mean, you know, the reason the media covers the, is the reason it was such a big deal was because it was so outrageous. Right? You know, that's you know the reason that the media was covering, you know, the angry people and yelling at the you know, town halls was because you know, it was so outrageous, right? And you know, I don't see that trend going away. Um, I, I think it's 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 sad, right? But like. You know, it's, it's what people respond to. And it's a really core fundamental problem with democracy. I mean, I, I don't even think it's necessarily populism. I think it's, it's actually really, you know, democracy in that, in that you know, you, you've got to sort of break through the noise somehow. And what breaks through the noise is controversy. Right. But to that end, I mean, when you use the idea of sort of reality TV meets politics and then, and then you know, bring it onto the Internet, it, it acquires a whole new real-time um, level of, you know, of who's telling the truth, who's not telling the truth, and, and you know where do you, how and where do you verify this? And that was something else that kind of came up um, through other means at Congress camp, but was the discussion really of when you're on, on these different social networks, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or whatever, uh, that there's a, a real-time flow of information, but there's, there's still the sort of fact-checking perspective that has to be put in place. And so the real-time flow of information can actually overwhelm that fact-checking point uh, at certain times. And, and so people have to be very careful, or their own tweets could be misused. I mean, the Iran election came up as the perfect example of how people were, with good intentions were retweeting uh, basically Iranian intelligence agents' uh, misinformation. But it, it, it cuts both ways, right? I mean, you know, in the same way that misinformation can get out really fast, information can be corrected really, really fast. And we've seen, you know, one of the big problems that we had, you know, for me, like a few years ago, is we had, you know, we went into a big war. Right, because and the media wasn't giving us all the facts about what was actually going on. I think that would be much, much harder today. You know, as 
you know, the independent media and, and things like Twitter are so much more, are so much more um, part of the political news cycle, right, is that, you know, the same way misinformation can get out there, like the truth can actually get out there as well. And we're seeing, you know, live real-time fact-checking on things that politicians say, you know, on the news shows, right, and stuff like that. And so, you know, I, I, would, you know, I would really like to see, you know, the politifact.com, right, or the factcheck.org, you know, exist on Twitter, right, real time, you know, based upon the speeches that are happening. I think there's a whole opportunity there for those sort of trusted folks to do sort of, you know, the mystery science theater 3000 version of fact-checking. <laughs> it, it, it's going to create a whole new generation of, uh, or a whole new uh, importance to trust agents, too, especially trust agents who can, who can move at the speed of social. Let me ask. This is Steve Lonson. Let me ask a question about. So, so a lot of what we've talked about is about how they uh, how to use some of the tools in, in kind of citizen interaction. What about? Was there any any talk at, at Congress camp about um, using the tools to, to figure out how to work better with the bureaucracy? How do how do you make make the the the, the legislation that's coming out uh, more successful in terms of getting the business of government done? In, in terms of you know, as opposed to the old way of of dragging people up on the hill either for, you know, in-person 20-minute briefings, whether it's the lobbying arms or whether it's actually from agencies uh, and hearings. But how do you kind of work this into the, the general, using these tools into your workflow of, of pushing legislation through and then ensuring that the legislation that's going through is, is actually going to be uh, successful once it, it hits the bureaucracy? One of the things um, that we, there was a whole session on was um, about how a lot of this activity is actually happening inside of the subcommittees and how there isn't really any transparency or any way for citizens to get involved in that process. In fact, you know, the, the members of Congress, they only want to hear from their constituents, yet, you know, if as a constituent I want to talk about health care, chances are, you know, my member of Congress doesn't really have a whole lot of say in it because it's all happening, right, in this other subcommittee. And so there was a real gap uh, identified there as far as getting folks engaged. Yeah, and also I think that there's a real gap that was identified very, actually it was laid out quite clearly by uh, a staff member who worked for one of the committees, which was that the committee process itself is so, uh, so convoluted that modern tools don't actually um, work right now for the way the communications exist between lobbyists, between members, between all the different levels of things going on on the committee. And so they're looking for ways to sort of take all that information and put it out there. Because that would be huge, you know, if the, if the committee, subcommittee information and deliberations were actually out there in a meaningful way, um, that would elevate the level of power and transparency much, much higher than it is now. And another thing that I think a lot of the staffers voiced as sort of an obstacle for them is that um, in most of these Hill offices, um, the people getting into these online tools and using these are still the press and communications people. Um, and on the legislative side, there's still not, um, there's still isn't total buy-in from people working on policy and legislation. Um, so when it's still the press and communication side of the office is, that's trying to push it for the rest of their office, they're still encountering a lot of, um, I guess, pushback from the rest of their office, and they haven't convinced everybody else of the value of it, of online tools for legislative purposes as opposed to just press purposes. Did you see many, um, I find that interesting because uh, I've been noticing that too in the executive side space that a lot of the people are either from kind of press comm uh, backgrounds or often from a tech background. 
Uh, were there a lot of kind of IT staff on the Hill as well, or was it just mainly uh, comms folks? There were definitely a couple IT people, um, and both of them that I remember at least were very vocal um, about the obstacles that they're having in their offices trying to um, improve their online presences um, and the kinds of things they've faced. Um, there were some that were talking about improving their uh, office's websites um, and a lot of uh, the tech issues that they've encountered. So there were a couple. I don't know um, that there were a lot of IT people, though. There were a lot of people that were forced into being IT because they were the ones that knew how to use Excel. Um, <laughs> or they were the youngest yeah. in the office, yeah. 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 Now, Alan, uh, let me ask you about this, this whole thing about participation and maybe 80% of constituents not using some of the newer uh, web-based tools. I, one thing I've been interested in, and I know some local Congress people in the Bay Area use these online, excuse me, phone town halls. Uh, instead of having an in-person town hall, they call all the registered voters and invite them to be on the town hall. And they're... Uh, they get some blowback, oh, you don't want to face the, the constituents. But on the other hand, they're getting, uh, you know, 3,000 people on this live conference call instead of the, uh, you know, the couple hundred who might come out to the town hall. Was there a discussion and also what are, what are you looking at, you know, in, in being an entrepreneur in this space about getting more people engaged uh, in the system who, who might not be as technologically savvy? On, on the first one, I mean, it just it just goes without saying that 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 brings a, a whole new definition of phoning it in. <laughs> um, the the idea behind that, however, I think is very solid. As long as it's not like some politician is using this sort of technology to basically hide. Uh, um, but the fact that more people can be participating, uh, more people can have their voice heard. And um, I think that's better for democracy overall. That, that's the whole idea of what we're all working on here. Um, I think that it also helps to, to, to give more of a real-time um, image of the, um, the messages going on in that district, simply unless it's a situation where some trade association or advocacy group has hijacked that communications tool and they're using it you know, where they've flooded it with their members. But if it's not that, barring that, then you probably have a really good real-time indicator of what's going on. Um, we're looking at a number of different things, actually. UDGov has been asked uh, by state governments and also by the federal government um, to take a look at how we can um, include things like video conferencing and telephone conferencing uh, into um, you know, real-time uh, discussion forums where elected officials and or other officials can have conversations with Citizens. And clearly that's a very um, engaging and, and compelling thing for government officials to be looking at, partly because it allows them to bypass the media and allows them to go directly to the people and have a direct conversation without the filter of the media, whether that's a, you know, whatever filter you think that is. Um, but this is, allows people to have that sort of more direct conversation. And it also uh, lowers a lot of costs. It lowers travel costs. It lowers other media costs. Um, and it allows, I think, the government to start to look at things to anticipate problems rather than dealing with them in a reactive basis because now they're starting to get more real-time flow of information from their citizens. So it is definitely something that, that our company is looking quite closely at and utilizing our, our platform for. And Jim, um, we were talking about this uh, changing 
changing nature of politics. Do you think that, uh, you know, I'm kind of envisioning a, a, a demagogue who can, you know, steer the, uh, the angry masses uh, from whichever side uh, to uh, kind of hold on to and, and gain in power. But what do you uh, envision from uh, widespread use of, of social tools to really uh, kind of enable populist democracy? I think that there's going to be a big shift from, you know, right now in order to, to win elections, you have to raise a lot of money. I think there's going to be a big opportunity for a shift being going from who can raise the most money to who can inspire the most volunteers, right? Uh-huh. And to inspire the most volunteers, right, a fundamentally different challenge, right, than, than trying to get lots of money. Um, it turns out if you inspire volunteers, you actually will make plenty of money too because people like to donate. Because they spread the um, message, right? But yeah, and so well, I'm really focused on trying to build the tools that are going to shift that balance to the people who can inspire the most volunteers. And inspiring people, you've got to like take a stand, right? You've got to be out there and saying, "This is the way it works, guys, and this is how we're going to solve it." You've got to you've got to you know make people believe that you can actually um, that you can actually affect the process, right? So it's a lot of you know that's what was so effective about Obama's "Yes, we can," right? Is that it was like you know, sort of getting past people's apathy and saying, like, there's, these are the ways we can solve it. And, and I think there's definitely going to be a new generation of leaders that really um, are able to tap into that and, and inspire people in that, you know, ultimately that will be more effective than the people who can raise the most money because as we're seeing, you know, advertising, commercial advertising is becoming increasingly less effective, right? And what works is word of mouth, right? And so I, I expect to see, you know, the Zappos model for campaigns pretty soon where it's, you know, amazing customer service, right, that, you know, gets people so excited that they start telling their friends about this amazing candidate who did these amazing things. And I I know that uh, especially in the kind of Gen X, Gen Y um, crowds, uh, traditional political advertising is getting more and more uh, bad press or bad word of mouth, right, how ridiculous some of these ads are. So that's – I think that – you know, having just run for Congress, I think that we're five, ten years out from full, you know, from real revolution. But you can see the seeds of it now in the volunteers and in how people talk about things. The problem is you have all this online activity, and then you have, you know, a very low percentage of the population actually tuned into it. So it can be very loud and it can get media attention, but the actual voters aren't there yet. But I think in five or ten years, just uh, in the changing of the guard as far as uh, the generations, you're going to have more people engaged in, in the online, uh, more social portions of politics. Absolutely, we're getting there. Well, we've just got a few minutes left here. Um, Steve uh, Lunsford, do you have any, any closing thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, this is the first time we really had a, a pretty decent discussion, I think, on the political side of uh, of of these tools and, and kind of go to us. So I think it's great to kind of hear what went on at Congress camp. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I wasn't able to attend. I, I know it was right on the heels of, um, of the big O'Reilly, uh, summit. So hopefully there was some carry through and some of the energy and stuff that that came over. And, and I believe, um, it'd be great, Alan, or, or if anyone has uh, links, I believe you said there's a lot of stuff that was captured. If we can make sure that the, we get those links and, uh, maybe you can add it to the show notes, and then we can also uh, tweet it out. That'd be great, so people can kind of go and check some of that content out directly. Great, yeah. There's there's uh, a lot of content right at um, uh, CongressCamp.org, and uh, there, there's uh, I think a Twitter feed 
for the tag Kong Camp. Uh, Steve yeah, Ressler, and we're also any, on uh, Twitter at it's just at Congress Camp, and we post a lot of the content there, a lot of the recaps and blog posts and updates. Um, right. are all. I gotta get that added to GovTwit. Yeah. I don't think I have you guys in GovTwit yet. <laughs> oh yeah, um, we should definitely take care of that. Yeah, I thought uh, just uh, this is Steve Ressler chiming in, uh, just echoing what uh, Lunsford said. It's fascinating to see the legislative branch side, you know, so many similarities. And I also always find that talking to other practitioners in the space, it, it's oddly comforting to see uh, people going through the, the same steps and the same struggles, uh, but at the same time progress being made. So um, just the same stories that, that we hear um, when meeting with government employees about, you know, the com or the IT shop, and they're, they can, you know, they're trying to move the agenda forward, but, you know, it's really hard right now. But, you know, a couple good examples here and there. And I really agree with Adriel. Hopefully for all this is maybe not five to ten years, but uh, I definitely see uh, it's it starting to tip and become more and more mainstream. So hopefully, uh, as I say, as I always say, there's, I think, a hundred good go-to examples now. It can include political, legislative, executive, uh, hopefully in a year it's a thousand and then ten thousand and two. So, uh, and and we'll have an effective ranking system to say which are the best. Yes. <laughs> uh, Nisha, do you want to give us your final thoughts and maybe tell us where uh, folks can find you uh, online? Sure. Um, well, final thoughts, I actually just wanted to um, mention that sort of coming off of Congress camp, um, we are – uh, a bunch of us that are in D.C. are meeting tomorrow to talk about output and next steps and what kind of action we want to see come out of it. And I know one of the things we talked about in the last, um, I think the final session of Congress Camp was creating um, a repository for best practices for congressional offices in terms of using online tools and managing and sharing information um, and communicating with constituents. Um, so I know that's something that Wayne Burke has really been spearheading a lot um, and there will definitely, I'm sure, be some interesting conversations about that tomorrow. Um, and there is a lot of content about that um, and about all the other sessions posted on our website at congresscamp.org. Um, so I definitely recommend checking that out. Um, I guess where to find me online? I'm on Twitter, at Nisha Chital, um, and my blog is politicalholic.com. Great. Well, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. And uh, Alan, your final thoughts. Sure. I I was um, really happy to be there. Like I have been at all these camps recently. The thing that I'm really picking up on is not just the energy, but the the, the huge dedication that people um, are putting into this. Uh, many people are, are working really, really hard and not earning a lot of money, and, nor are they getting a lot of recognition at this point in terms of what they're doing. It's fascinating to see how people are collaborating and using these various social tools to come up with new ideas for us to sort of own, take back control of our government. And so as someone who's just been part of that, it's just very exciting to see, and it's great to see such a great combination of people come together, especially over a weekend. And um, why don't you give us a quick uh, rundown? You're putting on a Government 2.0 event in uh, February in L.A. Can you uh, tell people where they can find out more about that? Sure thing. Um, right now, uh, we're in the process of creating the official page and whatnot. It's going to be uh, February 5th to the 7th uh, weekend also. Um, 
really building it as a Gov 2.0 camp on the West Coast where we can start to use common language to break down um, some of the things that we're all talking about and maybe try and take this discussion from sort of the, the level of a geek's paradise to something a little bit lower where more people can buy into it and maybe we can see quicker implementation as a result of that. Uh, and so um, we'll be making some announcements in the next week or so about sponsors and also about uh, more information on where it's going to be, and there'll be an official site up in the next couple of days as well. And people can also follow you at U2Gov uh, on right, Twitter, sure. right? On Twitter, I'm U2Gov, and our website is www.you2gov.org. Great. Hey, thanks a lot, Alan. Thank you. And uh, Jim, and you're our last, uh, our last uh, word here. Um, I'm also in Los Angeles along with Alan, and we actually got the chance to, to actually meet for the first time in D.C., um, which is great, and That's looking forward great. to uh, uh, getting involved with uh, Gutsuo Camp here in Los Angeles. Um, I couldn't believe that that was actually going to happen, so it's very exciting. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening. It's great. Thanks for um, having us on and, and talking about Congress Camp. Uh, you can get me at uh, Jay Gilliam on Twitter. Great. Thanks a lot, Jim, and thanks for the, all the work you're doing in this space. It's, uh, it's interesting stuff. Uh, well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. That's it for this week's edition of uh, Government 2.0 Radio. Uh, if you want to uh, appear as a guest on this show, uh, just the best way to reach me is uh, on Twitter at Adriel Hampton, A-D-R-I-E-L Hampton, uh, or you can email me, uh, Adriel at AdrielHampton.com. We're always looking for interesting topics and guests. And we'll see you here uh, next week, uh, Sunday, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 Eastern. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, We're on the web at uh, gov2oradio.com. Thank you. Bye.